As we continuing, as we're continuing through the Bible this year, last week we began looking at the book of Hebrews. And as I said last week, we only have uh, after today we have two more messages on our through the Bible uh, series. We're going to look at Revelation for two weeks, and then we're going to go right into Advent. And so I know I've skipped a whole lot, especially uh, in the New Testament as. Uh, we began approaching the end of the year. What I needed to be done, I realized I spent way too much time on the on Genesis because I liked it, and I'm skipping a lot of stuff I want to get to. I'm skipping James and Peter, and I, I know that. Uh, but the good thing is, uh, 2022, I can preach whatever I want to. So some of the stuff I skipped, I'm going to get onto. So we'll get there. But we began looking at Hebrews, and Hebrews is a very interesting book for a couple reasons. Number one, because we don't know who the human writer of the book of Hebrews is. We know the author of the book of Hebrews is God. First Timothy tells us that all scripture is, is given by God, is inspired by God. So whenever we read the Bible, whether we're reading a letter from Paul, whether we're reading the words of Peter, whether we're, whatever it is we're reading in scripture, it's not the human writer that we're, that we're listening to. It is God. God inspired them. God used them to write these eternal words. So the human writer is not very important because we know God wrote it. God is the author of this. We also don't know who the, the audience is. We know that the audience is Jewish because the writer uses a lot of uh, Jewish tradition and Jewish uh, characters in the Jewish religion to teach some powerful lessons. So we know that whoever he is talking to has a firm understanding of the Jewish religion, especially the first five books of the Bible. So this is Jewish believe. We know it's Jewish believers who for some, they're being persecuted somehow because of their faith in Jesus. They're suffering persecution. And a lot of them are turning from the faith and turning back to Judaism because their life was easier in Judaism, because their family still respected them and still talked to them because they, they weren't persecuted as Jews, but they are persecuted as Christians. So they're, they're turning from their faith and they're turning back to their religion. And so the writer is trying to encourage them to stay faithful to Jesus. And he uses a lot of different uh, characters. He talks about the Torah itself. He talks about Moses and angels and all these different uh, characters in the Old Testament that is, is powerful to the Jewish faith. And he's showing them how Jesus is is better than all of them. Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is better than Melchizedek. Jesus is better than Abraham and all these different powerful figures of the faith. And he's showing how Jesus is better than all of them. And so we should stay faithful to Jesus. And then in chapter 11, he reminds us of the incredible faith of some of the, the heroes of the faith. And we all know chapter 11 is the, the hall of faith for the believers. And so he reminds them of these great heroes of the faith and how they endured difficult times. And then in chapter 12, he talks about the problems that we are facing. And again, it's, it's beneficial that we don't know specifically who the writer is talking to. Because a lot of times, we're reading the book of Philippians. We know what was going on in the Philippian church. We read the book of Corinthians. We know what the Corinthian church was going through, the division, the sexual sin, all the problems they had. And so we can sometimes read what he's writing to the Corinthian church and think, man, that's, that's good for them and not really apply it to us. But the thing is, the whole Bible, every word, every jot, every tittle applies to you today. Because the word of God is eternal. 
See, the Bible we have are the very words of God, and they weren't written down several thousand years ago and compiled and finally given to us. The Bible says that the words of God are eternal. They always have been, they always will be. So when we read Scripture, we don't look at it and say, oh, well, that was good for the church at Corinth, that was good for that ancient civilization. No, 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 it applies to us. So we look at it and we can say, okay, how does this apply to me today? And so when we're reading Hebrews, yes, he's writing to a group of Jewish believers who are suffering persecution. And he's talking in chapter 12, reminding them how the problems they faith are, are they face are used by God to increase their faith. We need to look at it and say, you know what? God's talking to me because we all have problems. We all have struggles. We're not facing the persecution they face, and we're going to get to that, but we still have difficulties in our life. And so in chapter 12, he talks about how trials and problems and persecutions are used by God to increase our faith. Have you ever felt like the circumstances that you were facing were were unfair? that God was mistreating you. I'll be the first to say I have. There have been times I have faced problems in life, trials in life, difficulties in life where I I looked at what I was going through and thought, God, this, this isn't fair. Why are you doing this to me? Why are you allowing this to happen to me? Or where I'm going through a problem and I feel like God's not there. You ever felt like God didn't care about you no matter what you were facing? If you can't answer that yes, then... You're lying to yourself. We've all felt that from time to time. And it's okay to say. I know we're in church and they I can't say I never believed God was there. It's okay to say that. Because the church, uh, the, the people that were reading the book of Hebrews, they were facing the same thing. Or maybe you felt like God was using your circumstances to get your attention, to teach you a lesson, or wondered, what's the purpose of what I'm going through? What's the purpose of this pain? What's the purpose of this loss? What's the purpose of this trial? You know, it's easy to wonder at times whether God really cares about what's happening in your life, if God is paying attention. And what the writer of Hebrews is reminding us of is that difficult circumstances can do two things in your faith. It can drive you deeper into your faith or it can, they can make you lose your faith. Andy Stanley says that there is nothing, uh, there's nothing that erodes your faith faster than unexplained circumstances where God doesn't do what we think God should do. He calls that circumstantial faith. Circumstantial faith says, I believe in God based on my ability to see God in my circumstances. Our, our belief becomes based on what we see, what we, we see happen in our life, what we experience other people around us do. It's faith that goes up and down based on how your life is. If everything's going well, God is good all the time and all the time, God is good. But if you face problems, all of a sudden God's not so good anymore. Maybe God doesn't even exist anymore. Maybe something bad has happened. This type of faith is fragile and it damages and hinders our walk with God. 
And the writer of Hebrews, he is, a, he is addressing this type of faith. He's talking to these believers who are suffering persecution, and because they're suffering, they're turning from their faith. He is addressing circumstantial faith and showing them what true faith looks like. It's faith that looks only at Jesus. Look at verse number, chapter 12, starting at verse number 1. Wherefore, now the word wherefore there is another word for therefore. Now, when we see the word therefore, what do we do? We go back and see what it's there for. We're going to do that in a minute. Therefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame and is set down at the right hand of God, of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. Now, so first of all, it says, wherefore or therefore we are compassed about by so great a cloud of witnesses. It talks about this, this cloud of witnesses that is surrounding us as believers today as we go through life. And I've heard a lot of people try to explain what this cloud of witnesses is. I've heard some people teach this cloud of witnesses are our loved ones who were believers, who have died and gone to heaven, and now they are surrounding us and watching us go through life. And it's, it's been used like this. Don't sin because Nana's watching, and you don't want to upset Nana. Let me just tell you, Nana ain't watching. All right? Your relatives who have died and gone to heaven are not watching you on this earth. You know why? I got a couple reasons why. Number one, there's no sin in heaven. So how could a sinless place allow them to look at sin? And it would grieve their hearts. And so there's no sin in heaven. Secondly, why would they? Why would they waste eternity watching you when they can be worshiping Jesus? There's, you know, it's like watching TV. We're the rerun no one wants to see. He's the premiere everybody's looking for. So your loved ones are not, they don't care what you're doing. They're in heaven praising Jesus. And I've heard people say, man, I bet when I get to heaven, I bet I'm going to find my grandpa fishing on the Crystal River. No, grandpa's at the feet of Jesus. If they're in heaven, they're at the feet of Jesus, not watching you. So this, this great cloud of witnesses isn't lost or past loved ones who are watching you on earth. And you better not sin because grandma and grandpa are going to be disappointed in heaven when they see you do what you did. You shouldn't sin because God's watching you and God's going to be disappointed in what you did. Not grandma, grandpa. But so we don't, we don't want to, it's not this law, these past loved ones. Again, this chapter begins with the phrase, therefore. So we have to look at what it's there for. Chapter 11, we have the hall of faith. This list of heroes that, that has gone before us. This group of past faith heroes, they are the great cloud of witnesses that are surrounded by. Now, they're not watching us. They're an example to us. 
We see how they endured and their faith survived no matter what they were facing. And as we look to this great cloud of witnesses that has endured incredible persecution and, and stayed faithful to God, we look to them as an example and say, if they could do it, I can do it because they serve the same God I have. They have the same Holy Spirit that I have. So he isn't telling us that we have a bunch of spirits watching everything we do. Rather, he's saying we have examples to look to to help us in our faith. These heroes of the faith, they act as examples to us as we run the race of life, as we face trials, as we have problems that we can't explain. We look to them and through their faith, they're saying we've been there. We've had ups and downs with God, but through it all, we trusted God because God is always good. So we have these examples of what true faith looks like, not just faith in good times, but faith in adversity. And we're not going to look, I mean, you can read through them. I'm going to go through a few of them. We're not going to read a lot of them. But in Hebrews 11, we have people like Abel, who despite the constant you know, barardment from his brother, the constant, you know, hate from his brother, because his brother, it wasn't a one-time thing where Cain all of a sudden said, that's enough, I'm, I'm, you know, Abel just made me mad this one time. It was a constant battle between them because Abel worshiped God and walked with God and, tr and trusted God and Cain didn't. So Abel suffered and was killed by his brother, but still faith faithful to God. We think of Noah, who for 120 years built a boat in the middle of an area where there was no great big body of water, telling people it's going to rain when it had never rained before, but he stayed faithful to build this boat. He stayed faithful to, to, to God and do what God had called him to do. And then he had to watch the entire world drown. We kind of forget that again. I've talked about it before. We have this kind of veggie tales mentality about the Bible stories. And, you know, we, we put scenes of the flood and Noah's Ark in nurseries in our church, but it's a terrible thing. Noah and his family are gathered in this ark as the waters begin to rise and they hear people on the outside beating on the ark saying, hey, let us in, let us in, take my baby. And they had to sit there and listen to them all drown. That's, that's rough. But he stayed faithful to God. Think of Abraham who had to wait 25 years for God to fulfill his promise of giving him a son. Then when he does give him a son, after about 13 years, he goes, hey, you know that son I gave you, your only son? Take him up on a mountain and kill him. And Abraham, by faith, trusts God and goes. Now God spares his son, but that took incredible faith. What about Isaac, who watched his dad almost kill him, only to have him stopped at the last second because an angel was there and gave him a ram to sacrifice instead? What about Jacob? who he saw his, his sons sold his favorite son to slavery and then told him he was dead. For years, he thought his son had been killed by a wild beast only to find out later, hey, my children lied to me because they sold him into slavery. What about Joseph, who was sold into slavery, then lied upon and thrown in jail? 
That's some pretty serious persecution. But he stayed faithful to God. What about Moses who had to lead the nation of Israel who was rebellious for 40 years through the desert. Joshua, who had to conquer the promised land after Moses' death. What about Rahab, who, who risked everything to help these Israelite spies? Or David, who faced giants, and there's just so many more listed. And then look what the Bible says at the end of chapter 11, verse 36. It says, still others had trials of mocking and scourging, even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned they were sawn in two, were tempted, were slain with swords. They wandered around in sheepskins and goatskins while destitute, afflicted, and tormented. The world is not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains and dens of caves of the earth. These have all obtained a good report through faith. So the writer says, not just these people we know about and these people we, we honor and we study about, but just throughout time, men and women who have suffered incredibly, who were burned alive for their faith, who were sawed in two, who were thrown in jail, who, who had incredible persecution, but they stayed faithful to God. Your problems don't seem so big compared to that. When you're looking at someone who was burned alive because they trusted Jesus and stayed faithful to Jesus, our problems don't seem so big. And he's saying, they stayed faithful so you can stay faithful. No matter what obstacles come your way, the Bible says run your race with endurance and perseverance. Keep the faith no matter what your situation is because no matter what you're facing, God has something better for you on the other side. So how do we look at the saints of old and have the faith that endures the pains and the struggles of life? The writer of Hebrews gives us two ways. Number one, he says, focus on the Son. Look at verse number one. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. I'm going to tell you a secret you probably didn't know about me. I hate running. I hate it. You know, the Bible says in Proverbs, the wicked run when no man pursues. So, you know, again, Timothy, bodily exercise, profited little. I hate running. When I'm running, the only thing I'm thinking about is, why am I running? And when can I stop? So if you ever see me running somewhere, call the cops because somebody's chasing me. Right? I just, I don't want to do it. But I do know a little bit about running. When you go to run a race, you don't show up in cargo pants and a hoodie and combat boots with this backpack on. You shed all the weight. That's why runners, even, you know, if you ever watch these, these marathons where they're running these marathons, even in cold weather, the runners are like, you know, they're wearing like nothing. They got those short shorts and tank tops. You know why they're doing that? Because they're shedding all the weight they can. They don't want to run with heavy clothes on and heavy shoes on in the backpack. They shed all the weight they can so they can be as fast as they can. That's what professional runners do. You don't run a race with a 45-pound backpack on and expect to win. You shed all the weight you can. That's what the writer is telling us. He says, shed anything 
and everything that hinders you from running with Jesus as quickly as possible. Now, it makes sense, but it's, it goes contrary to what we believe. Because we think running with Jesus or walking with Jesus is just avoiding sin. Here's a sin, so I'm going to avoid that. Here's a sin, I'm going to avoid that. That's not what the writer is talking about. Again, look, he, he says, uh, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily besets us. So we think of running to Jesus as avoiding as many sins as possible. And so we, we look at something and say, is that a sin? If that's a sin, I need to avoid it or I need to get rid of it. What we should be doing is looking at everything in our life and saying, does this help me run faster? Does this help me get closer to God? There are things in life that hinder us, that weigh us down, that are not necessarily sin. But we should still get rid of them. You know, maybe one of the issues, again, y'all know the, my background in Christianity and how the fundamentalism I came out of, and music was a big one. Music was huge. Now, they called it sin. It's not sin. But you could only listen to, like, hymn music. Any music you listened to, it had to be, you know, kind of old-timey. It couldn't have any drums, no guitars, no nothing. Even though, you know, the Psalms talks about string instruments and drums. We're not going to get into that. But it's like you can't have this worldly beat. You can't have this kind of thing. You can't, if it looked anything like the world, you couldn't have it. I mean, I remember when I was in college, you couldn't have facial hair because only people and only worldly people had facial hair. You know, like Jesus who had a beard. But anyway, uh, so, but, you know, music was one of those things where I say, that's a sin. Now, listen. There are times we should listen to spiritual music and listen to, to Christ-honoring music. And there are times that it's, you know, it's not appropriate to listen to that kind of stuff. But you, you may not listen to Spirit FM all the time, and that's okay. The music you listen to, it may not glorify sin. I like 80s rock. Love it. Some of it's a little out there, but I love 80s rock. Now, if it's not glorifying sin, if it's not, you know, some of these country songs they do, you know, but it's not glory. It's not cussing all the time. You know, you're not listening to gangster rap where they're dropping the f bomb every every third word. You're not listening to cursing. You're not listening to things that glorify sin or lead you to sin. That's that's not necessarily sin, but if it's not bringing you closer to God, then it may be something to get rid of, or maybe something to say. You know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna intersperse some Spirit FM in my music. Which I do. I listen to Christian music all the day, time while I'm here. I listen to 80s rock when I'm mowing the grass. Now, unfortunately, the grass doesn't need to be mowed anymore. So I can find another reason to listen to 80s rock and murder podcasts. But anyway, because uh, I listen to those too. Uh, but, you know, so it's not, okay, this isn't sin, but is it, is it helping me get closer to God? And if it's not, it's not a sin, but it's a weight we should get rid of. Maybe the person you're dating, maybe they're not pushing you to sexual immorality, but are they drawing you closer to Jesus? If they're not, it's not a sin to have them in your life, but it may be a weight. We say, you know what, I got I to gotta think about getting rid of this. Maybe you avoid shows with nudity and bad language, which is great. We should put no wicked thing before my eyes. But you're watching, you're watching nothing but good TV shows and good G-rated movies. You're watching stuff on, you know, from the, these spiritual places. And you're watching, great, what you're watching is great. But is it taking time from your Bible reading and prayer? If it is, then it's a weight you need to get rid of. 
Social media can be a great tool, can also be a huge weight. When you spend all your time on it, and that's where you find your satisfaction, and that causes you to get jealous of other people. So you may be carrying something that's not necessarily a sin, but it's a weight that's keeping you from running the best you can for God. And he says, shed what weighs you down. But then he says, after he says, get rid of the weights, he says, looking unto Jesus. Shed the weight that's keeping us slow. Get rid of the hoodie, get rid of the backpack, get rid of the combat boots, put on your running gear so you can run as fast as possible, as, as efficiently as possible, as good as possible with Jesus. But then while you're running, keep your eyes on him. Keep your focus on Jesus. The thing that can make a difference in lasting faith and faith that fails is what do you look at when things get hard? Remember the story of Peter walking on water? They're in this huge storm. Jesus comes and he doesn't calm the storm. The storm's still raging. But Peter, they see him coming on the water and they're scared and they think he's a monster, a demon or something. And he says, it's me, Jesus. And Peter says, Lord, if it's you, bid me to come out to you. And Jesus says, come on, man. And so Peter steps out of the water and he is walking on water towards Jesus. He's looking at Jesus. He's on the water. Great story of faith. But then what does he do? He starts looking around. He stops looking at Jesus and starts looking at the waves and starts looking at his problems and begins to sink. And Jesus has to save him and says, oh, Peter, you have no faith. If Peter would have kept his eyes on Jesus, he could have walked on water until he died. But he took his eyes off of Jesus and put them on his problems and lost faith. That's what happened to, happens to us. No matter what we're facing, no matter how big the storm is, if we focus on Jesus in the storm, we don't lose our faith. If you focus on your problems, if you focus on your, your circumstances, your obstacles, if you focus on other runners instead of what you're doing, then you're going you're gonna to falter in your race with Jesus. But if you focus on Jesus, no matter what is happening around you, Focus on the one who conquered death, who conquered hell, who conquered the grave for you. Focus on the one who's already won the race and died for us and took our sin, that took our shame, that rose from the grave and gave us his righteousness. If we focus on him, then we will have faith that can endure anything that comes our way. Elizabeth Elliot, great missionary, said the secret to enduring is Christ in me, not me in different circumstances. You don't need your circumstances to change. You need to change what you're focused on. So first of all, focus on the sun. Number two, how do we have enduring faith? See your pain differently. Look at verse number five. <clears throat> and ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children, my son... Despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth and scourgeth every son he receiveth. Now, chasten there is a heavy word. It's the Greek word paideo, and it means it, it speaks of a child, of a father discipline, dis giving discipline to his child to train him, 
to correct him. It is not punishment. There is a huge difference between discipline and punishment. The word punishment in the Greek literally means to destroy. As a child of God, God doesn't punish us. Because what he punishes, he's punishing to destroy. And Jesus took our punishment on the cross. When he hung on the cross and God placed our sins on him, God poured his wrath for sin out on Jesus. God punished Jesus for my sin and your sin. And he died and rose again to show that the price had been paid. The punishment for God's children is over. But God does discipline his children. When, now, real quick, if you're facing a difficult circumstance right now, health issue, relationship issue, whatever it is, it's not necessarily discipline, but it's not necessarily not either. That's only you and the Holy Spirit know that. Only you and God know if what you're facing is God testing your faith and growing your faith or God's disciplining you to get you back with him. That's, that's between you and Jesus. And since it's, since it's between you and Jesus, I'm not going to look at your life and say, yeah, they're suffering because they're being disciplined. I don't have that right. That's, you know that, I don't. But when we, God does discipline those he loves, when God disciplines us, he does it out of love. That means when you are disciplined by God, it's proof that you are a child of God. It means that when you are disciplined by God, there's a purpose for your pain. God cares enough about you to correct you and keep his hand on you. It's like being stabbed, all right? I can stab you because I want to hurt you, because I want to kill you. You go to the doctor, the doctor says, you have a tumor and I'm going to cut it out. He's stabbing you, but he's doing it because he cares for you. He's doing it to help you. Now, they both hurt. You ever had surgery? It hurts. Now, not when they're doing it because they put you under anesthesia and you don't feel it then, but you feel it when you wake up. You feel it the next day when you're walking around and you got those stitches and, oh, man, that hurts. And, you know, you feel it. It hurts, but it's for your good. You ever been stabbed? Just that? No, I haven't been. But I'm sure it hurts. But there's no good out of it. You're shaking. You're like, you've been stabbed. All right, okay. <laughs> so you get stabbed because somebody's trying to kill you. You may survive. It still hurts, but there's no good. They didn't stab you out of love. They stabbed you out of hate. The surgeon stabbed you out of concern. He was trying to help you. Both hurt. Both are painful. But one is out of concern. The other is out of hate. When God cuts you, he cuts you like a surgeon. He's trying to help you. He's trying to remove those things in your life that don't belong, that hinder your walk with him. But Satan tries to convince you of the opposite. Satan's whispering in your ear, if God really loved you, he wouldn't do that. If God really loved you, he wouldn't allow that to happen. Satan tries to make you think that your trials are proof that, doesn't, that God doesn't love you that God wants to hurt you out of anger. But the word of God says that God loves you and that through your suffering, it is proof that he loves you. You know, God 
Let's, it's, and it's, it's easy sometimes, especially when we're facing discipline, we, we sin, we know we messed up, and we face consequences. Now, again, you seek forgiveness, God forgives you. He cleanses you of all unrighteousness. But actions still have consequences. You know, you, you go out, and you get drunk, and you drive drunk, and you, you kill someone. You can ask forgiveness from God, and God will give it to you. You can ask forgiveness from the family, and they may give it to you. But you're still going to jail. We understand that? There's still consequences for your actions. You commit adultery on your wife, God will forgive you. Your spouse may forgive you, but she still all may say divorce you. There's still consequences for what you do. And it's easy to look at our life and say, I ask forgiveness, but I'm still suffering these consequences. And here I got this other person I know in my life. They're not saved, and they're just doing whatever they want to do, and they're facing no consequences. Why? Because God doesn't discipline those that aren't his. God only disciplines his children. So he may let people wallow in their sin, but he corrects his children even if it hurts. So we need to see discipline from the Father as a show of God's love for us and appreciate it and submit to it and grow for it, grow from it. See, the more God loves you, the more God corrects you to appreciate it to understand it is what it means to, and we need to appreciate that and understand it and not focus on how it feels. Look at verse number seven. I want to hurry up here. Verse number seven, the Bible says, if you endure chastening, God deal with you as with sons, for what son is he whom the father chasteneth not? But if you without chastisement, whereof you are not our partakers, then you are bastards and not sons. Uh, furthermore, we have not had fathers of our flesh which corrected us and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection to the father of spirits and, uh, and live? For they verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure, but for our profit, but he for our profit, that we might be partakers of his holiness. Now, God is not like any earthly father you can have. Some of you had some wonderful fathers. You, you cherish those memories. They were, they were just great times with them. Some of us didn't. Some of us had some pretty bad dads. They were abusive. They were absentee. They hurt us emotionally, physically. And so some of us had some, some pretty bad fathers. And what the Bible is saying here is no matter what father you had on earth, no matter if they were a great dad and they only disciplined you out of love, or they were a terrible father who were abusive and angry all the time. No matter what kind of a dad you had, God is not like any earthly father we could ever imagine. He is better than all of them. See, God never punishes out of anger. One of the issues I have with my dad, he always, if you messed up, he would react out of anger and, and do some of the most horrible, he'd, he'd just react out of anger and start spanking. And when you're spanking out of anger, you're not spanking, you're beating, in my opinion. That's me. You be sad, disagree. You can be wrong. But when you're spanking out of anger, you're being abusive. Or he would get mad and throw the TV across the room just to break it. Why? Because he's angry. And so I decided I'm never going to discipline my kids out of anger. And I've tried not to. And I've 99% of the time, I have never discipline them or punish them out of anger. I have reacted to anger. I remember one time Parker, after I gave him an airsoft gun and told him, never shoot it in the house and never point it at anyone because even if you think it's unloaded, you always treat every single type of gun, even a Nerf gun, like it's loaded because you don't know. You know how I know that? 
I shot my couch with an unloaded shotgun once. So always treat guns like they're loaded. Well, he was playing in the house with his airsoft gun, pointed it at Connor, pulled the trigger, and shot Connor in the face with an airsoft pellet. You ever been shot with an airsoft pellet? They hurt. I reacted poorly. I got in Parker's face. I was yelling at him. I took that airsoft gun, snapped it over my leg, threw it away, and I, I reacted. Now, I went back and said, I reacted wrongly. You know, you did wrong. You're in the wrong here, but I shouldn't have reacted that way. I apologize. God doesn't react that way. God's never going to just quickly, in anger, react and punish you. He is always there for us. He is the perfect heavenly father. He is more concerned about your good than you are. He is always looking for the long term. Matt Chandler says it this way. God disciplines us for our good in order that we could share in his holiness. See, suffering and discipline brings the fullness of holiness because there's something about suffering that detaches us from the world. That makes us realize our hope's not here. Our faith's not here. We got to put everything in Jesus. Look at verse 11 real quick. Now, no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward it yieldeth a peaceable fruit of righteousness unto him, unto them which are exercised thereby. Again, discipline's not punishment, it's training. Even when you discipline your children, you're not, you're not punishing them just because you're mad at them and want to hurt them. You're trying to train them. As a little child, when a, a kid, a toddler, takes a fork and starts going towards the, the, uh, the electrical socket, and you take the fork, no, don't do that. Oh, you're, you're hurting that kid. No, you're teaching that kid, don't stick, your, don't stick something in there because it's going to kill you. What's, what's going to hurt more, a little slap on the hand or a fork in an electrical socket? You're protecting them. You're training them. You're telling them that's not what we do. And as kids get older, you got to discipline more for more stuff. And hey, this is why you're being disciplined because you lied and we don't lie. You're disciplined because you were disrespectful and we don't want to raise disrespectful people. So you're training them. You're not punishing them. You're training them. But again, the, the, it's, it, it, again, the discipline is not punishment. It's training. Now, the word exercised here in verse 11 says uh, we're exercised thereby is the Greek word gymnasia. We get our English word gymnasium for it. It means to work vigorously. Your pain is not God being mean. It's not God being absent. It's not God being hateful. It is God training you through your pain. You grow your muscle by breaking them down. When you exercise and you lift weights, you're breaking down your muscles. And that's why the next day you're a little sore because you tore that muscle and it rebuilds stronger. God knows what we need to rebuild our faith. So the pressures of life, the weight, the persecution, the discipline we face is weights that God uses to grow our faith. He breaks us to build us. When you feel broken, when you feel down, when you feel weak, think about the cloud of witnesses that are around us and fix your eyes on Jesus who went before you. And know that in Christ, when you run, you never lose. You're more than a conqueror, and Christ has already won the race. A couple more verses, look at verse 12. Wherefore, again, that means therefore, because of all this, because Jesus went before us, because we have this great cloud of witnesses, because we're keeping our focus on him, Wherefore, lift up your hands, which hang down, and the feeble knees, 
uh, and make straight paths for your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, but lest it rather it be healed. We are feeble. We are weak. We are lame. We are broken because of our sin. We don't have the strength to pick ourselves up and run. And so God, our loving Heavenly Father, stepped in. God, through discipline, through pain, through persecution, God steps in to heal us and break us down to make us stronger. And he sent Jesus to do what we can never do. He sent Jesus as our example on how to endure. He sent Jesus to conquer every circumstance we could ever face and conquer sin. He sent Jesus to fix our focus on when all of life is failing and reminds us that he is our loving heavenly father, even in discipline. So the question that the author of Hebrews is asking us is pretty simple. Does your faith change based on your circumstances? Does your view of God change based on what you're going through? When, God's, when everything's good, is God good? And when everything's bad, God's bad? Or when everything's good, God is good? And when everything is falling apart, God is still good? We have to have faith that lasts. As a believer, there's only one way to endure the race that's laid out for us. Fix your eyes on Jesus and view your pain differently. We can endure the race because Jesus endured the cross. Let's pray. Heavenly Father.